You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Will Mavity's interview with the editor for Belfast, Una Nigalila. We all have a story to tell, but what makes each one different is not how the story ends, but rather the place where it begins. Oh, holy God. Mama says if we went across the water, they wouldn't understand the way we talk. If they can't understand you, then they're not listening. You know who you are, don't you? Your buddy from Belfast, where everybody knows you. Hey, buddy! Your mom's calling you the head! We're looking to cleanse the community a wee bit. You wouldn't want to be the old man out in the street. Touch my family and I'll kill you. Belfast. We'll fight this together. This is it. This is what? This is war. We're living in a civil war. What do you want? I want my family with me. I want you. Kids the same age as ours are getting killed. We can give these boys a better chance than we ever had. So, uh, where are you based right now? Are you LA? I'm in London. I'm actually in London at the moment. I'm doing um, a film, The Mothership, with Halle Berry and Omari Hardwick, uh, Matt Sharman directing. So, I'm, I've got my starry sky behind me. But oh, so it's it's getting to be evening. Well, thank you for uh, taking me late today. So, I, I appreciate that. My pleasure. That. My pleasure. Well, obviously, uh, this was just a wonderful film. Really enjoyed it. Um, the editing is really a standout. It's definitely faster paced than I expected. It kind of flies through the timeline. So tell me a little bit about the decision to really make this such like a, you know, just like blasting through the events film. Well, you know, because it's memory based and because Ken has a beautiful vision of this, your very painterly style of those tableaus, which I really love, by the way, of, you know, one of my favorite scenes is the one where Buddy's on the toilet and Pop is talking to him and Judy Dench is in the background and you've got that depth of field and the three planes, but it all happens in the one shot. Right. So very quickly, I think Ken and I realized in order to keep the momentum, we had to you know, maybe cut into shots. We couldn't, in some of the scenes where they were shot all in one or had maybe two or three shot coverage, you couldn't cut too much. So you'd either have to come in or late and leave early. Mm -hmm. or you could rearrange structure and because it is memory based we weren't stuck in any sort of timeline except that you know the riot at the end uh, had to be the propel the, the the propulsion for the family to leave but otherwise all the other little bits you know they could be moved when dad comes home or when the searching happened or when buddy goes to school again there was repetition so i think both of us are very good on pace and we just realized, OK, we have to keep this moving. We cannot be indulgent. We have to allow the audience to see it through the eyes of the child and allow the, the beautiful painterly style to shine through. But always keeping an eye on the audience and making sure the audience could empathize and feel in the shoes of the family and understand their predicament. 
So we, we did a lot of uh, interrogation of structure where we did sort of move scenes around. And that helped the pace, I think, that uh, there was that sort of generosity from Ken as well of just both of us wanted to make sure that it was the best articulation of his script that we could have. Because his yeah. script was beautiful, by the way. His his original script was just amazing. And then our finished film, it's just a real joy to see that people are really connecting with it as well. Also amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh. I'd say that, Will, as well. Like if, um, do you, you type this up or is this for... This isn't a podcast. You type up afterwards, do you? This was going to be audio. Oh, is uh, yeah. I'm for so a podcast. sorry. I <laughs> no, that's that's, that's totally. You know that out. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's authentic. We like it. Uh, <laughs> sorry. So I am curious. Obviously, you talk a lot about Canada's very uh, painterly style. It's a gorgeous film to look at. I know he talked about that he wanted visually, though, to really create a lot of kind of uneasiness throughout to show yeah. like this boy's world has been thrown off. Yeah. So in addition to kind of like having this memory like structure, how did the editing kind of add to that sense of unease? I think the fact that we were able to really build up the sound from the first day of principal photography. So um, I had contacted uh, Ken in August so before we start to shoot just to ask him what were his memories his audio me his sound memories if you like so I could begin like a, a bin because it was shot on a sort of a set in Surrey in England and to transpose that story to Belfast which is a harbour where you'd have the, the ship horns and everything and then Ken was brilliant he was like for well sounds <clears throat> that evoke his memory of childhood were things like the ice cream van, the rag and bone man, the milk van, obviously the ship horns. So before we even began shooting, I was able to actually build that sound bed so that when we started shooting and I was assembling on the Friday after principal photography, Ken came down to the cutting room. So we we did the whole thing remotely, except for the first two weeks of the shoot when I was in London. And um he came down to the cutting room and I was able to show him the first week's assembly with the sound design in. So that I think helped. Sound is a very brilliant tool because implicitly you can do things that are a bit jarring and the audience feel it on an unconscious level. They mightn't be very aware of why they're feeling unsettled, but it's maybe something that we've put into the sound bed. So I, I was already trying that. And then, of course, you know, the first scene of the riot, when the camera's going around and around the boy, we were able to ramp up the speed and, and down the speed. He shot at slow motion and then I was able to put a time warp on it and sort of adjust when we slow down and when we sped up again. And then the explosion, you know, breaking the, the moment. So we were mindful of, of just keeping the audience, I think, seeing it through the child's eyes. That was the most important thing, subjective point of view and allowing the audience in. And it, it sort of, once you go down that road, I think it sort of reveals itself, even when we were making big changes, it, it all felt quite organic and, and we were on the same page, just trying to make sure that it worked like that. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones, but things like, say, the, the vicar, <clears throat> when the vicar is like, and this was in the script, I mean, it's such a great line, you know, Catholics, it's a Catholicism, it's a religion of fear, and then you get to the Protestant vicar and he's... <laughs> Protestant, you will die. Things like that created a disjoint anyway, which was really great fun. So there was sort of things within his writing that actually allowed that uneasiness to gather. And then the face of Jude Hill was just a joy to edit because then you could get everything in to that boy's eyes. 
no matter what she did. You, know, you could use his face at different times throughout the film. And he just was wonderful, depending on what sound or music we added with him. He just enriched the scene with his, his face and his performance. It's like a dream come true for the Kuleshov effect, right? <clears throat> yeah, exactly. So I, I think that I think that's one of the things that we we did very well in this film is just we kept watching it and we kept reviewing it and, and working out if we moved a scene later. So Pa coming home, for example, from England, that was earlier in the script. But we found, well, if it came afterwards, if it came after Christmas, after the boy has said, I don't want to go to England and he's fallen asleep with chocolate on his mouth. And then if it's the next day and the dad has to go to England and the child is waving from the window. Well, that was a more visceral reaction to see the father leaving there than if we had used it earlier it was expositional so we tried to do everything that was not expositional but actually had an emotional or psychological uh, wealth to it and that's why by moving it down later I, I have two kids and I, I live in Dublin but I commute for work in England in London and I was sort of laughing to Ken sort of saying I am Paul because I, <laughs> I know what it's like you know when you're leaving and you're waving and you don't really want to go but you have to go and so I think I think uh, we kept an eye on that as well, which also helped with this, the, the, the disjoint and the feeling of you can imagine as a child to say, I don't want to go to, to England. And then the next morning you awaken, your dad is leaving and you don't have time to apologize or you know, make amends for what you've actually done and the guilt of that. So we were, keep, were mindful of that as we edited, just keeping in the shoes of the lead characters always. Or the mother, you know, she didn't want to go to Canada and... Then to have the beautiful scene when we used Van Morrison's song, you know, Days Like These, which allowed you to see Belfast at its best with a joyous extended family, love, neighbours. Why would you want to leave Belfast? And then, of course, the troubles, you, you have to leave Belfast. So we wanted the audience to feel that dichotomy of it's not so easy. It's not easy for Ma to leave Belfast. And we wanted the audience to understand that. Because otherwise, if, if we didn't do that, an audience could get frustrated with Ma and start thinking, yeah. why doesn't she just go? So we really had to do a very strong pass, a buddy pass, a Ma pass, a Pa pass, and make sure that those people were, were characters that an audience could empathise with and understand and, and be with them and not frustrated by them. So I was curious, you know, did you always plan to open the film with these shots in color of yes. modern day? Yes, you yeah. did. <clears throat> yeah, well, Ken had that written in his script, actually. So it always began in color and it ended in color. And before he began shooting principal photography, himself and Harris went to Belfast and they filmed it in on their phones and things. They did like a recce. Mm -hmm. And then Ken gave me um, access to their Dropbox. So I was able to pull it together and do like an assembly of the opening based with these phone footage. And myself and Ken actually worked through that. It wasn't just like a simple thing. I think we spent about a week where I was like zooming in and reframing the phone footage. And we had um, Van Morrison's music. We also had a voiceover. And we really explored that prior to principal photography, which resulted in us dropping the voiceover, dropping an interview, sticking with these shots so that when he went back to film the actual color shots, mm -hmm. They could almost emulate what we had created with these zoomed in, you know, repositioned phone shots. And then because um, when he went back, I think he only had two, two days to shoot that. And then it was always even in script form. It went over the wall and turned into black and white. So so that was so we did good work prior to shoot just to make sure that we got that opening working. And um, we used that Van Morrison track. 
wonderful track too. I hope he's nominated for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ken and Van are the two poets of Belfast, so it's wonderful (laughs) to see them both in the same film. (laughs) History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Speaking of moments that were in color, uh, I had heard that originally there were quite a few more trips to the cinema in the film. I think that were even shot uh, tell me about the decisions for the ones that you kept and which ones had to go on the cutting room floor. So we had a beautiful sequence with um, The Great Escape, which mm. I have to admit, when I first read Ken's script, what I really loved, apart from his whole story and the fact that he has captured the vernacular of his parents, uh, my, my dad's from Northern Ireland and is very like pop with that ability you know, to break into a song or a verse at a drop of a hat to emphasize a point or you know, the closest and intimacy with neighbours of all persuasions. But he also had this theme of escape. So escapism by going to the cinema or theatre. And then within that was The Great Escape was one film. Then we had High Noon, which was sort of trying to show that Western, which then with the iconography, we could do the same thing for Belfast through the eyes of the child. Belfast was turning into a Western. And we ended up dropping it for a couple of reasons. One of them was again, for the rhythm and flow of the film, a challenge with editing a film like this, when you have tableau sections, you have to keep the pace going. Mm -hmm. And it just felt perhaps one trip to the cinema too many. And we, so we had three trips to the cinema and we had the theater. And then we just decided, unfortunately, even though Great Escape was wonderful for loads of reasons, not only is it such a brilliant film, but the performance from the family assets was amazing. but we found that actually that rule of three, that if if they went to see One Million Years BC and if they went to see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, that the third one was actually the theatre. 
Mm. Whereas when you had three cinemas and a theatre, it was just one too many, unfortunately. In a bigger film, maybe we could have kept it, but it, it just felt right to lose it. And it also happened at a time where we were going into um, the sequence days like these when the family go to the the park. Mm-hmm. So Ma and Pa are arguing about whether or not they should go to Australia. And he's showing the boys the globe and he was sort of saying to them, it's only a little trip away. And the mother's arguing, well, who can go there? No one can afford it. No one has any work. No one has any jobs. And then by going to the Great Escape, it just created like a little impasse before they got back to days like these. And then right. the mother was talking to Auntie Violet about, I, you know, he's going back to London again. And she's sort of saying to me, her, you should go. And it just was, yeah, it just rhythmically it felt richer by removing it unfortunately but it, it was the rule of three it is funny how those rules sometimes they do come to pass and they're they're right actually for just yeah they work well for a reason was it always the the plan to end on judy dench's moment of kind of looking towards the camera and saying those lines was that always kind of the natural end of the film it's shot no, and scripted? There, no there was a different ending actually to the film um there was a longer ending where we returned to Belfast in colour and it, it was much longer. Buddy returns as an adult to Belfast oh. and, and it was Ken. Uh, <laughs> but we actually removed that. We removed that from the film. And th- th- that was a brilliant. So we, we had a brilliant team on this. We had um, not only obviously Ken is just a master filmmaker and brilliant um, storyteller and an all round wonderful person as well really gracious you know generous collaborator but tamar thomas was our producer she was brilliant and kiska and higgins from focus and as a team i think all of us came together of just you're watching the film and what i really love about ken is he doesn't let it go if if it's not right or if something isn't right so we actually did lock the film with the longer ending and then he revisited it and said no actually you know what i don't think we need that and removed it and then we had I, i think about four days or something, five days to just try and and get Granny to be the ending. Now, Granny was always the ending of the black and white, and then we went to colour. But then it just felt like a natural thing that it sort of brought the film back to Ken. And I think he's very modest, actually. And he he began to feel, no, it's, it's not just my story. It's a universal story. And actually, by removing him from the film and allowing it just end with Granny, and then he came up with those beautiful lines, you know, for the ones who stayed, for the ones who left, and for all of those that were lost. I mean, that was beautiful. And as soon as he wrote that down, I think all of us were just like, yeah, that's the ending. And yeah. Yeah, it was, it was just perfect. It was a perfect. But I, I love that about Ken, that he never, he never lets something, if it doesn't sit right, he will go back in. And I would be of the same sort of ilk that... I wouldn't like to, like on a Sunday, I could suddenly think, this is the thing about lockdown, which I'm sure all of us have found. It could be Sunday at 6 p.m. and you suddenly think, oh, I think I'll just turn on the computer and fix that <laughs> and send it over to Ken yeah. again. Because it actually allows you. And I, uh, I think we're about to run out of time. So I guess the and last I- thing I'll ask you about is um, really quickly, I guess the riot sequences are one of the most editing standout points in the film. Just quickly tell me a little bit about creating those two big moments. It was it was wonderful because it was sort of like a bounty of riches. We had two cameras for the two riots and for the dance sequence of Everlasting Love. So we had so much to work with that actually it was it was joy. There's not much I can tell you except that it was so much fun because we wanted it to be visceral. Uh, again, this is where I think Ken and myself are a good team that we were like 
quite fearless and thinking, okay, even if that shot is like 12 frames, let's put it in. Let's keep the energy and that subjectivity alive by keeping it fast and visceral. And you get snatches of things which are actually more frightening because you don't quite know what, what on earth is going on. And the sound design also helped us with that. So, um, yeah, I know any editor would tell you the same thing. When you've got a lot of footage to work with, it's a joy. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. good. It's where we exercise all our muscles and go, oh, yeah, this is going to be fun. And then, of course, finding any of those little glimpsed moments that we could just add in there that added to the to the sort of immediacy of the thing that was really good. And I think sound was a vital factor in that as well. By pulling out music and just having the sound design, it kept it immediate and effective and quite scary, again, through the eyes of the child. And, of course, Ma has her her. Your dustbin with all those stones. Oh yeah, yeah, and the things are pelting here. Like yeah, I mean that has got to be Ken's mom. That has got to be an actual memory because that was in always. That was even in script stages. Really? Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think mother the warrior, warrior mothers. That's what we want. Well, thank you so much. This is a wonderful film, and I wish you the best of luck this Oscar season. It's really beautiful work. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interview with the editor for Belfast, Unani Ganila, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Belfast is currently playing in theaters from Focus Features. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.